This episode of the Lynx Golf Podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Tourism Ireland. Discover what fills your heart with Ireland and experience golf like never before. World-class courses, historic links, breathtaking scenery, and unmatched hospitality await. Visit ireland.com backslash golf and start planning your trip today. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. Class is in session today. This is digital editor Al Lunsford, joined as always by Joe Passoff, my co-host. Joe, we are going to, again, use the podcast as an educational platform and forum today. Uh, we're taking the kids to school, as they say. We're Today, we're going to cover some design terms and elements that you may have heard of. Uh, that I know in doing this list, and and Joe, these are some things as I've gotten deeper into the the industry and the uh, terminology of golf course design. These are some words that I've had to learn uh, that have popped up in reading and and listening to other podcasts and things of that nature. So, um, Joe, we're uh, we've got a list of terms today to cover teach the people a little bit about the history, some relevant examples, um, anything you want to prepare your your class as an introduction of forms? Well, uh, Al, I don't know if I'm a PhD worthy in terms of uh, professorship, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've spent many, many years uh, talking about design terms, studying them, going to see different examples. Um, and you know what? I mean, you know, it's it's a blast to play a great golf course. Um, actually, it's fun to play just about any golf course. But when you combine that with a little education uh, on, you know, what makes a given golf hole or a given golf course more interesting than another, uh, better design, and, you know, you we all go through that exercise. So in learning some of the terms, you know, whether it's an actual design term or it's a course characteristic. And hey, you know, number one, we want to sound intelligent as we're having a, a little snack and a beer uh, at the 19th hole afterwards. But it also increases our appreciation for architecture itself and for a given golf course, understanding that so much of great golf course design came from Scotland, evolved in many ways in the U.S. Um, so what are some of these terms and where do they come from? Why are they important and why are they worth knowing? Sure. I, I like how you said it. We're not PhDs on this. Um, we're simply going to give you a, uh, you know, enough to work with, I would say, and hopefully you, you learn something. I think this is a forum that'll could potentially work for future episodes. So if you like what we do today, and want to throw out a term that you think people should know uh, in the world of golf course design uh, or golf in general, please let us know uh, and we'll shape a future episode around your suggestions and come up with some more things to uh, expand on here. So without further ado, I will toss it over to Joe for our, our first lesson of the day. Al. Uh, the first term I want to talk about is barranca. Barranca. Yep, we heard an awful lot about barrancas uh, during the U.S. Open at LACC. And uh, 
you know, I think folks did a pretty good job of explaining what a barranca is, its role, and so forth. It's not a design term per se. It's an element of design. It's part of the golf course. It's what nature gave us. And I think barranca was amusing to so many people because, number one, it's fun to say. Okay? Uh, make no mistake about it. Number two is, yeah, it is unusual. People don't encounter barrancas east of the Mississippi um, or too many other places. In fact, its use in golf course design is pretty much confined to Southern California. Uh, we hear it from time to time when whatever they call the LA tour stop, the Genesis these days at Riviera Country Club. And that's where we hear it most frequently. And it was obviously a big part of the stage in different holes uh, at LACC, even more prominent than at Riviera. So what is a barranca? Well, you know, again, if you didn't learn it enough from the telecast, the dictionary definition, at least one dictionary, says it's a steep-sided ravine, gully, or gorge of varying width and depth that is a common feature of the landscape in Southern California. I've added that aspect to it. But just so you don't get too hepped up about Barranca, and is it completely just Southern California. Well, it's a Spanish-derived word for a gully, you know, for a ravine, something like that. It may be steep-sided. It may be a little more shallow-sided. They're just different. And if you've played in Arizona, you know that you come across among some of the top courses, uh, including Desert Mountain, uh, Desert Highlands, Troon, and others, the term arroyo or wash, a desert wash. And they're all pretty much interchangeable. It's just kind of a gully, a riverbed that's almost always dry, but it's nature's way of saying when we do get a flood and a heavy rainstorm, it'll channel through this area and go somewhere better uh, where it needs to out in the desert. And people sometimes forget that in Southern California, the climate, until everything got built, was not quite a desert, but it was arid. It was very much on the dry side, unless you were literally on the coast. So that's what a barranca is. What it does, Al, as a design element, is it's fantastic. Because if it's used properly, you know, it shifts over the years, just like a creek or a river where you get some heavier water going through. And in some places it's narrow and it's got a bunch of vegetation in it. In other places it's wide, usually with a sandy bottom. And one of the cool things is, is it could be playable. So you have decisions to make, risk reward opportunities that certainly we saw at times during the US Open. Can I carry? you know, this this barranca, um, say, on the eighth hole, or if I take too much of a chance at uh, 17, that long par four, and I'm going to slip into the right side uh, where a barranca is. Um, yep, that's what goes on there. And yeah, sometimes, as you can see, we find a golf ball that winds up in the barranca, and sometimes it's just lost in plant life. Other times it's sitting fairly well 
whether the sand is kind of hard packed or it's a little softer, or you can just get at it, um, even with an awkward stance, you can make a play from there. And uh, those are fun recoveries. So um, that's where we start. I think LACC, obviously, seven holes that touch the Barranca on the front side, just one on the back, the 17th. Riviera has a couple of holes, uh, 13. You don't, you don't see it as much because there's trees, but it, it's still there. Um, the eighth hole, again, can you carry a Barranca? The 11th. And then uh, one other really cool course in L.A., an old private club called Wilshire, which hosts the LPGA Tour every spring. 18th hole might have the best example of all. It's like a horseshoe-shaped uh, segment of Barranca that wraps around the green, uh, leaving an opening in front, but trouble left, trouble right, trouble beyond. And um, again, you know, there's your Barranca trouble. If, uh, you know, again, you go to Arizona, uh, if you're lucky enough to play a desert mountain, their best course is called Chiricahua, 10th hole, 482-yard uh, par four, and your second shot has to carry this steep desert wash. Very dramatic looking, um, but yeah, and and it's just, it, it's something that's there, both as an aesthetic appeal and um, and otherwise. Quinn Dolphin, uh, Diamante, uh, Tiger's Course called El Cardinal. Again, they call them arroyos, but they're really just desert washes. They're just dry creeks. You could call them barrancas, and they serve in the same purpose. So they're around, mostly in the desert southwest or Southern California, and um, take the mystery out of them and uh, just enjoy them for uh, their you know, they're both aesthetic and strategic value on any golf course that has them. You know, the first time I heard Barranca, one of the first times I heard this before uh, LACC and, and the U.S. Open, I was talking to a guy named James Duncan, uh, architect, uh, an associate of Core and Crenshaw, uh, longtime associate with them. He is uh, chief boots on the ground at a course you may have heard of called Brambles, uh, a little bit north. Uh, so almost it's kind of in the valley floor of California wide country. But he talked about uh, the use of barrancas there. Uh, and I remember him specifically saying the first hole, there was a barranca that almost functioned similar to the burn at the first hole at St. Andrews kind of uh, giving you thought or pause. The, the first hole there at Brambles is a par five, so it uh, functions as a, a risk-reward element, whether or not to challenge that barranca that's in front of the green, uh, like the burn at, at the first at St. Andrews. But the burn, of course, uh, just another word for creek or uh, you know small stream, right, Joe? Uh, burns, exactly. Burns are typically yep. full of water whereas barrancas oftentimes are not. So uh, I, in reading, too, around the U.S. Open, I read something the USGA put out that talked about barrancas. You know, you, you said it. They're natural, varying width and depth, uh, and can have, depending on where they're at, uh, they can be full of kind of native vegetation or or not. It could just be kind of a, a flat... Um, 
less dense expanse of, of this dry, washed out area. So they uh, can offer what the USGA said was is different hazard values depending on where they're they're at. So they can be very valuable as an architectural feature, like you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, some clubs actually choose to thin out the vegetation so that you can find your ball and either retrieve it and drop and play or possibly play out of it. And uh, you probably see that that much more um, on the, you know, the nicer Arizona courses and, and some of the ones in Cabo. But yeah, um, it, it, with the element of chance and letting the vegetation go, um, there's probably a, you know, a, a balancing act, a fine line and, you know, hey, OK, it's it's a hazard, so to speak, as we used to call them, um, but not necessarily a penalty area every single time. I mean, if it's marked such, great, and proceed appropriately. But otherwise, because it's natural and part of the golf course, if you can play out of it, you know, it's it's an interesting recovery. U.S. Open, they uh, were doing red stakes for that. So, so you can play it, or you can take a one-stroke penalty if you're in a particularly uh, vexing sit lie situation there. Yeah, I mean, you can find your ball and it's so nasty, you do not want to mess with trying to uh, to play out of it. So that's um, essentially the fairest way to deal with it. Very good. Anything else on Barrancas before we move on? No, I think, again, whether you see it as a wash or a Noroyo or a Barranca, um, it's not a ditch uh, or a culvert you know, cement lined. It's not a burn, you know, or a formal creek or whatever. It's, uh, it's what it is and it's natural and it's got variety. And, um, I think we covered it, Al. Onward and upward. Uh, lesson number two today, I'm going to talk about, uh, you may have seen, we, we had a couple of articles recently come out. Um, one of our writers, Eric Matashevsky, uh, outlined and highlighted this, difference for our readers uh, before our podcast listeners let's discuss the dual green versus the double green maybe a commonly confused term maybe some people think that that's the same thing uh, i'm here to explain to you the difference and what we refer to as double greens and dual greens so let's start joe with the dual green the dual green is when a single hole has two completely separate putting surfaces. So this is two greens on the exact same hole. This is actually something in Asia that's pretty commonplace on, on several courses, uh, particularly Japan. Um, they, you have courses there that have 36 greens on them for 18 holes. Um, a lot of that is to reduce the wear and tear uh, a lot of it is to change the, the grass types, have two different grass types on two different greens. So you have a warm season grass on one green, that's in play. Get to the cool season, you switch to the other green for a cool season grass. Uh, so obviously, you know, the, the downside there is you have a lot more to maintain, um, as is evidenced by the course's uh, that make up the the list of the ones in America. Uh, it's not really that commonplace here uh, because of maintenance costs, because of the amount of land you have to work with. Uh, it's more so uh, a one-off at a lot of places. Um, 
but examples of the the dual green uh there's famous example uh at Pine Valley the eighth hole two greens there one on the right one on the left uh and down the list uh I've played the one at Stream Song the 13th hole Stream Song Black uh Gil Hans's course down there uh, I've actually never played to there's a green that's pretty much straight away on that hole on your drive. And then there's one that's kind of far off to the right. I've actually never played that one to the right. Uh, only played there twice, but both times it was to the the dead straight green. The one on the right kind of looks treacherous, uh, a little bit more elevated uh, and further away for, for anyone who's played that course. Uh, I remember the ninth hole at Pacific Dunes, that being another example. Uh, the one plot time I played there, there's a court, the green straight away. If you're playing that hole, there's also one down the hill and to the left. If you hit your drive towards the one down on the left, but you're playing the green on the right, uh, then that green on the right is kind of blind. So there's a different element to to that hole, and there is where where there's a significant elevation difference in the two greens on that one as well. Um, several other good examples out there. There's even at the Creek Club at Reynolds Lake Oconee, they have three greens on one hole, Joe. So we're calling these dual greens. I don't know what you would call a, um, a golf hole that has three greens on them, but uh, there at Reynolds, they uh, they do. They have that on the 18th hole. Well, uh, I know the great triumvirate has already been taken uh, as applies to uh, James Bray, J.H. Taylor, and Harry Varden. So we'll try to think of another name for the three greens of the Creek Club at Reynolds Lake Oconee. That's not bad. This is, of course, uh, converse to the double green. So dual green, single hole, two separate putting surfaces. The double green uh, is a hole that shares a putting surface with another hole. So one giant putting surface with separate hole placements and flags. Uh, this, the common example here is the old course at St. Andrews, of course. Seven double greens, so 14 of their holes share a green at the old course. Kind of a function. The old course used to be played in reverse, obviously. Um, people got tired of playing to the same place, uh, people getting in the way. Uh, and so the double green was kind of implemented uh, as a solution to that. The architect who you know, Joe, he's out from the Phoenix, Arizona area, Forrest Richardson. I got a quote from him where he says, although modern courses occasionally embrace a double green, the choice is generally for the sake of nostalgia or gimmickry, and not, as in the case of the old course, for practicality. The St. Andrews of long ago was a true reversible golf course, but as play increased, it became awkward to have outbound players playing the same hole as inbound players. So kind of what we described there. And Tom Doak, remarking on double greens, says, they're a great feature on a golf course that gets limited play. Except for private courses, not many people want to build those anymore. Um, on a busy course, double greens are a safety problem unless they are very, very big to keep the flags well-spaced. 
and in doing so wind up even being even bigger to two than two separate greens. Pretty much every double green built in the last 30 years was a promotional gimmick on the brochure so the brochure could say it has a double green just like St. Andrews. And for that reason, I hate them as a feature. That was Tom Doak's words. Um, double greens. So I'll give you a couple of examples of those, Joe, outside of the old course at St. Andrews. Uh, you've got one uh, that many people may have played, Black Wolf Run. The two courses at Black Wolf Run end on the same green. So the 18th holes of the river and the Meadow Valley's courses uh, both end on the same putting surface. Uh, another famous one is Old Town Club, the 8th and the 17th holes uh, there in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the Perry Maxwell-designed Old Town Club. It's another famous example of a double green in use. And back to band and Sheep Ranch, one I've played, uh, two of their par threes, the third hole and the 16th hole, share one elongated double green cliffside the third hole is set pretty well above in terms of where the putting surface is from the 16th hole, but as it commonly does, as it did when I played there, you have people hit through that third hole onto the 16th green while uh, you're you're playing and putting down there, and it's a pretty tough recovery from there. That's as long as your ball doesn't keep rolling and go off the edge of the cliff and into the Pacific Ocean. All right, so... If we are understanding that correctly, double double greens, dual greens, two different things. You got that, Joe? You, you think we're good there? <laughs> I think we're pretty good, Al. Um, yeah, you know, I was fortunate enough to play in Japan um, at a lot of their uh, top courses and a couple of trips there. Uh, and it was a minor thrill, given my interest in architecture, when I got to play Tokyo Golf Club, which um, is one of the top courses in Japan. And that among them was uh, probably the highest ranked course that I got to play with the dual green system. And again, as you alluded to, I mean, it was so much based on summer play or warm weather play versus cool season play. Um, and it was really fascinating to me about how similar the greens were. This wasn't a case like some that we've encountered where, oh, wow, this is almost a completely different hole. You know, they just have an extra green that makes it interesting for variety's sake. In Japan, it was like they tried to have the green complex be very similar from one to the next, both the distance and the contouring, the hazard value. Um, so it was just like, no, we want you to play the same hole. It's just, here's our cori grass over here, and here's our bent grass over here. Um, in recent years, a lot of clubs in redesigns, uh, restorations, which we'll get to, um, have, have gotten away from the dual green system because the improvements in grasses are so good now that clubs can accommodate one green and rather the extra maintenance and taking up that kind of time. So um, it was, it was still a novel concept, if not necessarily, you know, the best one. Um, and, and then another plug for a, a golf club out here, uh, desert mountain, um, which, you know, is fortunate with seven golf courses. 
all due respect to Tom Doak's fatigue about double greens, but he said, hey, within the last 30 years, it's gimmicky. Well, when Desert Mountain was first conceived and the original developer Lyle Anderson paired with Jack Nicholas, and in 1986, they dreamed up, it was really Lyle's thought, but Jack eventually jumped on board to do an homage to St. Andrews, the old course, with the first course at Desert Mountain. That is called Renegade. And um, again, it's it's strictly private, but there's no better example um, of flexibility where you have a whole bunch of double greens out there and you have a number of dual greens at Desert Mountain Renegade, which was just fascinating in the early days. You know, whether you call it a gimmick or not, it's a good gimmick because back then nobody was doing that kind of thing. And it was interesting to just, hey, Jack won two open championships at St. Andrews at the old course. And so let's see what it, that concept looks like in the desert. And he had like four or five or six sets of tees so the golf course could play 8,000 yards or it could play 4,500 yards. And depending on which green you were going to um, or which hole location on a double green, that kind of thing, the uh, white flags and the gold flag. So, yeah, maybe we don't want to repeat, you know, gimmicks uh, it, it, over time because they're less original. But um, certainly that stands alone for American golf. I've uh, never been short of excited when i encountered either one of these examples um played out at you know palmetto dunes the george fazio course at palmetto dunes in south carolina hilton head um where links is based uh has a double green um and it's it's great it's a thrill uh likewise there's a course belfair i got the chance to play there had a dual green uh, we had two different greens to choose from. It was, it was kind of a dealer's choice. Uh, that also was, you know, it's because it's different. So you don't see it every day or every course you play. Um, hardly that. I mean, it's pretty rare as a as a feature. Uh, because of that, I, I enjoyed it. And maybe that's why I enjoyed it so much, because it's the rarity of it. If every course had holes with a couple greens to play to, um, yeah, maybe it wouldn't seem so exciting or interesting when you came across it. But, um, you know, you can keep going with this, Joe. There's even holes like Hague Point, again, across from Hilton Head. They have dual uh, holes or alternate holes on their course. So you can decide to play, you know, 13A or 13B uh, on your way to through that course. So they have 20 holes technically out there believe it is yeah the dual system uh alternate holes alternate greens and so all kind of just i don't know adds adds an, a unique unique wrinkle to some of these places yeah it's a slender slice of golf course architecture but a historic and important one and uh I, i'm just like you you know when you do encounter it um it's uh it, it, hey this is cool you know, we don't see this every day. And I think that's part of the appeal. This episode of the Lynx Golf Podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Tourism Ireland. Discover what fills your heart with Ireland and experience golf like never before. World-class courses, historic links, 
breathtaking scenery, and unmatched hospitality await. Visit Ireland.com backslash golf and start planning your trip today. All right, Joe, what's next for you? Well, Al, uh, I, I, I alluded to it earlier, but um, I think we were, uh, uh, you and I agreed that it would be good to talk about the difference between renovation and restoration, because it really was front and center uh, during this past U.S. Open. Uh, and I say past, meaning like, uh, yeah, the one that just happened at Los Angeles Country Club North. It's a perfect example of uh, a golf course that was everybody acknowledges and says was brilliantly restored and using restoration. This is Gil Hans, his partner, Jim Wagner, and um, and Link's contributor, Jeff Shackelford was on that team with his expertise in Southern California courses and George Thomas, the architect. Um, but it's very interesting because in other ways, it was not a pure restoration. It was not. And so we get into the gray area in between there. And there's a term that uh, folks have used that could apply here called sympathetic restoration. And then there's even one more term I'm going to get into momentarily. But, okay, it seemingly makes sense just to understand the difference between renovation and restoration. But um, I did ask Gil Hans, the architect, to define those terms for me. And this is what he said. He said, restoration is when the principles, style, and objectives of the original architect are the overriding factors for decision-making on the project. Then Gill mentioned the, what I did, there's also sympathetic restoration. When those same elements are put into place as the overriding factors, you know, meaning the architect's original intent, but with sympathetic restoration, you're adding, you're accommodating the modern game and technology in placing and designing the features. Renovation, on the other hand, is when you allow your own thoughts to creep into the equation, either because there's no significant architectural pedigree or no desire to restore what was there, or perhaps there's just something that doesn't work based on the modern game. And then finally, a category that we call redesign could also be remodeled is when there's little of inherent value that we can identify. So when Gill's asked on what he should do with a given golf course and what the club wants, and in Gill's mind, this is what separates one from the next. So we like to think that restoration is the best because of these fantastic golden age architects. And, you know, subsequently those designs kind of just got messed up along the way. But you can't always restore something to just the way it was, nor would you want to necessarily. If there's no more room to expand and you're faced with what was a 6,600-yard golf course back in 1923, um, 6,600 just isn't going to test the best players now. 
Now, if there's room to add, you pop in a back tier two. You move the bunkers to an appropriate spot where they will have the risk reward challenge that they were intended to be. And hopefully, then you also design the bunker in a way that goes back to what they looked like then or how they functioned. So, you know, that's the interesting part of this. And when I say that, you know, pretty much all the talking heads on television uh, this past week were calling it a restoration, let me tell you what Gill said about LACC's restoration. He said it was close to an actual restoration. We expanded greens back out. We brought holes back to the corridors that Thomas established in 1927. We reestablished the width and put bunkers back that had been removed for various reasons. But then he added the sympathetic part of the restoration was that we moved bunkers downrange for the modern game and we added back tees. Stylistically, and this is key, the bunkers are different from what Thomas and his associate Billy Bell left behind. So he said, we focus more on their overall body of work and on some of the beautiful bunkers they created, meaning created elsewhere. And Gill finally said, so it wasn't a pure restoration. The goal was ultimately to put it back as close to Thomas as we could. So the simple way of looking at it is restoration means putting it back as close, if not exactly, the way it was. Renovation is when your own thoughts come in and you say, we can do something better than either what the land will allow or what the architect had in mind. So the rest of it, sympathetic restoration, a redesign, I think you understand that now. And one final term I got to throw in hasn't gained a lot of popularity, but I see it out there, which is combining the two words, restoration and renovation, into one restovation. And one of the best examples of that is what Kyle Phillips accomplished at the Cal Club, the California Golf Club of San Francisco up in the Bay Area. And what that meant was. He renovated, even redesigned, because he took part of the property and created brand new holes. They never existed on anything that happened there before. And that included Alistair McKenzie doing bunker work and some, and some re reworking uh, back in the 1920s. Brand new holes, but he imbued them with the golden age sensibilities, the bunker style of McKenzie, the strategies that McKenzie would have done. And then for most of the holes at the Cal Club, Kyle Phillips attempted to restore them pretty much how they looked in the 1920s and played and functioned. So, yep, you will encounter that term from time to time, whether it's sympathetic restoration or a restivation. Um, it's another great way of treating and handling some redesign work on making a golf course as great as it could be based on its older version. That's a good breakdown because I'm sure people have I've read about courses that are being worked on. And based on the terminology that is used, you can maybe get an idea of what's going on, whether it's 
being restored back to what someone else did, whether the architect that's been hired is going to insert themselves on it and, and to what end they're going to do that. Uh, maybe you can get a, a hint at that in, in the wording of whatever there's a press release or a story about a golf course. Uh, you might have a, a lead, a leg up on understanding what's going on uh, by understanding what those words mean in context. So another one, Joe, that would be a sympathetic restoration was Oak Hill that we just saw at the the PGA, right? And, and what Andrew Green did there. Perfect example. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, they had holes that were lost, you know, plain and simple over the years that Donald Ross did. And, um, you know, subsequent architects, uh, both in changing the holes and um, adding even new ones, uh, again, uh, in many cases, just didn't necessarily get it right for posterity. And what Andrew Green attempted there is, okay, with 12 or 13 of the holes, I'm going to take it back as far as I possibly can to exactly had how Donald Ross did it. And for a few of the others, we're going to still imbue those Ross sensibilities in there. But Fairway Bunker with a 250 carry is not going to concern anyone teeing it up at the PGA. So you use that same design principle, but move that bunker out to the, say, the 315 mark or build an additional back tee that will make that first bunker come into play. And so it's not a pure restoration. It's a sympathetic restoration. And by all accounts, uh, Andrew Green and Oak Hill East got it exactly right. So, Joe, this is a, a nice, uh, unless you had anything else, it's a, it's a good segue to my next topic. Uh, Fire away, Al. Sure. Um, another course that uh, was the subject of a restoration by Gil Hans himself was Baltus Roll and its lower course. One of the biggest tasks that Gill took on in the restoration of Baltus Roll, uh, which of course we'll see coming up for the KPMG Women's PGA Championship, uh, not far from now, this month, um, the women will play their major championship there, uh, is the Sahara Bunker on the par 5 17th at Baltus Roll. Uh, Sahara is the next term we're going to talk about here, uh, otherwise known as the Great Hazard. Uh, so A.W. Tillinghast incorporated this feature uh, here at Baltus Roll, uh, did so at Pine Valley. You may have heard of Hell's Half Acre. Uh, it's another Great Hazard from Tillinghast, the seventh hole at Pine Valley. Uh, and But there's some, you know, Joe, in, in researching this, there's some uh, you know, differences in opinion about what Sahara is and where it actually came from. So let's go back a little bit. The first Sahara bunker, or a, a commonly thought of as the Sahara, uh, the original Sahara, uh, dates back to 1851. And uh, the Open Championship layout at Prestwick uh, there in Scotland. So the original second hole at Prestwick, uh, which is now the only remaining hole from 
the first open championship layout there. Uh, it's now the 17th, uh, and it's called Alps. It's a popular template hole that has been redone um, over and over again on, on other courses, uh, copied there. So 17th uh, or, or the Alps hole, it's a par four, has a blind second shot, typically over a hill, and a cross bunker guards the front of the green to punish short shots. Uh, now, the one that is there at Prestwick is actually called Sahara. So it is uh, a bunker, cross bunker, so it goes almost the width of the green. Uh, and anything played short to that hole uh, might be doomed to roll back into the Sahara bunker. Uh, but Alps does feature often uh, either a punch bowl or a uh, green with a, a kickback slope on the on the back of it to um, provide a little bit of relief from longer shots, uh, rewarding the player that's going to go long as opposed to the one that goes short and ends up in the Sahara bunker. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. Tillinghast version there at Pine Valley, there at Baltus Rawl is in the middle of the fairway. It's a great expanse of sand. Uh, now, actually, before the restoration at Baltus Rawl, that hole had kind of morphed into, instead of one great hazard, it was four bunkers that weren't connected. Uh, they expanded across the fairway like the, the current version does, but they, they were separate entities. They weren't one bunker. So Gil went back in, uh, restored it to a single trap, uh, with different patches of greenery dotted in there. There's a great there's great overhead pictures of uh, I would encourage anyone to look it up of the uh, Sahara bunker there at Baltus Roll. But um it's uh it's thought that that inspiration for that was the third hole at Royal St. George's uh, and a great expanse of waste area uh, that was called the Unknown Sahara. So um it's typically a big expanse of sand, from what I understand it, Joe. And if you miss the fairway in front of a Sahara bunker, uh, you kind of have a short drive. You're left with a tough decision on whether or not to uh, try to carry it because it can be, be 100 yards long in the case of Hell's Half Acre at Pine Valley. Or as I found myself at Baltus Rawl, I was a little short off the tee tried to carry the Sahara bunker there and was unsuccessful in doing so. So Sahara, big desert, big expanse of sand. That kind of explains what the Sahara bunker is. Am I getting that right, Joe? What do you think? I think you I think you did well, Al. I'm I'm just uh, sorry for your misfortune at Baltus roll. Um obviously uh the great hazard or Sahara is no place to be. So um I've seen you play. You don't miss many shots. But um, I have a sneaking suspicion you didn't mind being in the Sahara at Baltus Roll, just so you could say, I've been in the Sahara at Baltus Roll. That's exactly uh, right. That's exactly right. <laughs> at least that's the way our architecturally uh, bent-minded, you know, uh, minds work. Um, yeah, I, I think that's just the fairest way to put it in terms of a giant expanse of sand that must be carried. Uh, just about anybody would say, oh, my gosh, look at that sand. It's a, it's the size of the Sahara, you know, the Sahara Desert. And whether you thought of some other desert, like the one I live in, the Sonoran Desert, 
or the Gobi Desert or whatever. The Sahara is just kind of the most popular desert term out there. And um, yeah, the one at Prestwick, the uh, the first time I played there, um, I hit a pretty good shot uh, for my approach into Alps, the 17th hole. I was so thrilled to be there playing Prestwick. I had heard so many stories, done all my historical research, and I was ecstatic to see that my ball carry this awful looking bunker, absolutely wide cavernous pit with a giant wall of grass behind, beyond. And so I scurry up there to see my ball, uh, hopefully on the green close to the pin. And no, no, it did carry the Sahara, but it didn't get through the rough this band of rough on a slope leading down to the green. And boy, that was some reward. Now you're hacking out on a downhill lie out of deep rough. Um, and you're going to try to save par and uh, it inevitably failed at that. But it made me think, what was Tom Morris thinking in designing this hole? Old Tom, people using uh, featheries back in 1851. I mean, the ball didn't go anywhere. You know, they hadn't even switched to gutties yet. And you're being asked to carry this monstrous hazard. And that's really what it was, is that people embrace that as sporting, as man overcoming nature, that there was just something incredibly satisfying overdoing something that was that difficult. And I think that's what George Crump had in mind with Hell's Half Acre at Pine Valley. I'm happy to report I have also been in. And that's the nature of Sahara bunkers, whether we call them the formal, the Sahara bunker at the 17th hole at Prestwick, or whether it's just what A.W. Tillinghast did a lot in his great hazard concept, just a mess of sand and scrub that spreads across a fairway. Um, either way, that's what you're recognizing. And you're recognizing, again, there is strategic value in that because A, it's meant to intimidate for starters, but B, it's, yeah, you shouldn't have too much trouble in this day and age carrying that kind of hazard if you're in play. But if you stray and you're having to hit out of rough or something else, that is just not a place you want to find yourself. Um, it could take you several shots to get out. So um, it's an old concept, one of the oldest on earth, but uh, a tr tremendous concept, even as it applies in modern uh, golf courses as they've been restored. So we got away from cross bunkering and cross hazards for a long time, but hey, you know, we see it with water all the time. Why not do it with sand? The other thing about that, you know, the Sahara bunker at uh, Presswick, like you talked about, it's also seven feet deep. So, you know, the Sahara Baltusrol that I played in wasn't was basically ground level. You weren't have to having to worry about really really carrying a, a lip or anything. You find yourself in Sahara, the Alps hole at Presswick. Uh, you've got a lot of different things to deal with there. So, um, so there you go. All right, so let's move on to the last item on your list, Joe. Okay, uh, this one gets thrown around among folks who uh, uh, like to talk about architecture. Uh, probably almost as much as any term gets thrown around 
and it's often misunderstood, and that is Redan. Um, even how to pronounce it uh, gives people fits, but that's my understanding. A Redan is a concept in military strategy, which I'll explain, and it was adapted later on for uh, its use in golf course design. And the first time that we saw it in golf course design was probably in just about everybody's favorite quirky golf course, North Berwick in Scotland. And the 15th hole, a par three, is called Redan. Okay. Um, yep. It's kind of mystifying. It sounds kind of old and British and, and everything else. And yeah, yeah, it sure enough is. Um, although curiously, uh, it's Redan is actually a French word for um, projection or a salient. It's a feature of fortifications. And it was used in military times. And uh, again, I promise I'll get to that for you military history buffs. But for our purposes, um, a Redan is a golf hole, most often a par three, but not always, that embraces a certain green orientation and how that green is defended. Invariably, a classic Redan features a narrow green angled 45 degrees away from the tee, from front right to back left. Often the entire green is banked from a high point on the right and slopes down and away to the left. But occasionally that slope is just the back half of the green and the front half, the shorter side, isn't uh, as sheer. So um, what else can I tell you about uh, the Redan? Well, again, the original Redan at North Berwick uh, played about 190 yards, which is a long way back in the 1880s. Um, it usually featured a hole cut in the middle of the green or in the back, meaning it was back left. And it was most often accessible, as we used to play those links courses, by a low running draw. So you really had to be very clever in your shot choice. And that was kind of a punch shot, a crisp running draw that would chase up, you know, either just short of the green or land just on the green with a little bit of draw spin and let the contour move it closer to the hole that was in the middle or the back left. Um, the reason that you didn't want to fire right at the flag uh, in most cases is because a typical classic Redan has a deep bunker or even two bunkers that guard the front left portion of the green. So it's hard to fly it over the sand and hold the green because even though sometimes we're at the hole, that's where the holes cut, it's sloping off in a way. So again, even if you landed on the green, you wouldn't necessarily hold the green. So in many cases, it was almost easier to hit a fade, if you could, to the safer right side of the green. And if the ball didn't come down at all, you'd have a long putt, you know, sometimes 30, 40 feet. Uh, and, and it would be downhill to the hole. But of course, in the 1880s, the greens weren't running uh, 12. They don't run 12 very often over there. But um, 
you know, it was doable. You just had to have some kind of touch. And then the other issue, attacking the shorter side of the green or, or playing it safe there was if you went over the right side of the green, it was a pretty steep drop off on the original. And even its copycats, you could be have a big swale full of rough. Maybe it would be closely mown or maybe there would be sand back there on the back right. But it wasn't just, oh, yeah, 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 hit it up and don't worry about it if you go long to that shorter right side of the green. There was just crumble just about everywhere, but it's why the whole, what caught the imagination of C.B. McDonald, Charles Blair McDonald, and the other early architects. And um, again, um, it was named that way in around 1890 at North Berwick. Uh, by a gentleman who took it from um, a fortress that was designed in the Crimean War. And uh, if you knew uh, who fought in the Crimean War, um, Crimean War, Al, you're one up on me. It was the British versus the Russians in 1855. And in designing a fortification, they had a little, it wasn't like a, it was a, on a diagonal, but it also had an indentation in it so that the fort the fortress itself wasn't just a straight line it had a zig and then a zag while it was on the diagonal to kind of make it more challenging for you know the uh, uh their foes to you know attempt to attack so a military term apparently it was successful it was given um you know this name at north barrack and uh, and Sidney McDonald loved it so much that he adapted it as a template hole, meaning he and then his uh, his uh, his protege Seth Rayner used it on almost every one of their golf courses. There was a Redan par three, and um, man, I've gone on about Redan. Hopefully, you understand a little bit better. We're going to talk about a few Redan holes, but. I've been fortunate enough to play the original Redan four times. It's still not the best Redan in the world. There's one other, in my view, that's better. Ooh. Okay, let me let me stop you there. And I want you to, right. to have a big reveal on that. Let's be, let people stew on that and what that might be. But uh, it's this is an important one i think because if you ever come across one of these holes it's important to know i think how to play it as as joe described um one of my you know, first educations on the redan came from george pepper our editor i went out and played seth rayner's yeman's hall with him in charleston south carolina and the par three sixth hole there is a redan and so you're looking at it and it's what Joe described. There is, I think the pin was middle, maybe a little bit left. So it's on the other side of this fronting bunker on the left. Uh, the greens open on the right. And you can see a big wall uh, behind the back side of the green that everything feeds off of coming in from the right. So um, to play that hole, it was, you know, don't go at that pin because. Like Joe said, you won't be able to hold it. Everything's sloping away from the the pin there, uh, so it is not to be to be messed with. 
in that scenario. Uh, what you want to do is come at it from the right side and land it about the middle and let the, the slope take it. Uh, what I did there was, as Joe described, I hit it over that right side of the green. And from there, as is the case on many Redan holes, it's nearly impossible to get up and down because of this this big wall at the back of the, the green and a steep drop down uh, on the other side of it. So I don't know. You'd have to hit some sort of flop shot that uh, you're going to be landing on the down slope coming on the other side uh, and everything runs away. So it that's why it's nearly impossible because you can't really hit a shot that's going to, to stop near the hole from that position. So there are plenty of examples of that out there. If you ever come across the a hole that fits this description, don't be a sucker and go at that pin, uh, but also choose carefully. Going long is pretty tough. Going short and left is bad. I mean, if you can hit that shot to the middle right of the green that just runs towards the hole, then things get really exciting for you. But otherwise, just a really, really challenging shot. And it can go both ways, Joe, right? There's there's redans. There's also reverse redans out there. Yeah, I don't know that they emphasize it as much, but um, of course, the 11th hole at uh, LA North during the US Open is really a reverse redan, um, meaning it's angled from left front to back right. And you had those hazards uh, guarding the right portion of the green. And then you had some trouble if you went over the short side. But um, again, George Thomas and, and then Gil Hansen, the restoration gave you a nice, I mean, the hole's playing 290 uh, at, a, at, you know, at its longest, you know, gave you a nice little run-up area left front to be able to bounce the ball on and let the contour of the green, you know, get the ball a little bit closer to the hole. You know, Al, you brought up an important point in recognizing a Redan par three. Um, that's a big part of course management because it's counterintuitive to play away from the hole on a par three. You typically want glory. I want to stick it close. I want to hole it for an ace. And the Redan is one where you just say, no, I got to have the discipline to find the right spot with the right shot, the right trajectory, and just let gravity do its thing if I'm going to get somewhat close for maybe a, a birdie range. And, you know, that's that's a big part of it. Um, so, you know, I like um, C.B. McDonald, Charles Ware McDonald, um, gave this description in his 1928 book, Scotland's Gift Golf. He said, quote, take a narrow table land, tilt it a little from right to left, Dig a bunker on the front side, approach it diagonally, and you have a redan. Sounds pretty simple, right? But I mean, he he executed them beautifully. Most of the greatest redan holes were he and Seth Rayner doing that. And the other thing I'd say is that you can still have a redan hole without features being as severe as some of the very best. It can be softer over the back right. The front bunker or bunkers or even grass swales can be shallower and you still have a little bit more of an easier uh, recovery, so to speak. It's still a Redan concept. It just might, might not be as demanding as the original concept for the Redan. Okay, you've made the people wait long enough, Joe. What is your favorite 
Redan, or what do you what do you think is the best Redan? How I can't remember how you worded that. Well, I've been lucky enough to again play a number of classic Redans from Mountain Lake in Florida, which was Seth Rayner. Um, Old McDonald has a really nice one out at Vanden Dunes, the 12th hole there. Uh, Yale has an excellent one. Uh, uh, that would be the 13th hole. I've played Mid-Ocean Club in Bermuda. Uh, the 17th is a terrific Redan. I played Shinnecock 7, Somerset Hill 2nd, which is terrific. I have played Yeamans Hall. That sixth hole that uh, we both struggled on. And Chicago Golf has a phenomenal Redan, the seventh hole. But the best one of all, even better than the original, is at the National Golf Links of America out in Southampton, Long Island. The fourth hole uh, measures, I don't know, 195 yards in the day. Maybe it's a little longer now. But... Um, it is really exacting. It is spectacular looking because it has the setting near Long Island's Peconic Bay. And that's one of the knocks on the original Redan North Berwick is it's hard to photograph because it's just not a great looking hole. You're kind of at ground level. You don't really see the features too well. Um, and behind it are just kind of a, a stone wall, kind of a bleak landscape. A hotel up on the right. Um, yeah, I uh, I love the original, but uh, I love National Golf Links fourth hole even more. I, I think you were just wanting to flex on everyone with all those holes that you were. Oh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> My another one of mine that I think is a really good one. Just a, a shout out that I played uh, the 13th at Wexford on Hilton Head uh, is a version of a Redan as well. Where uh, I've taught some people about the Redan playing that hole too, and um, what to do, what not to do. So uh, next time you face a Redan, uh, you listening out there, you'll know what you're supposed to do. So good, you know, well. Uh, I, it's, it's a good one that you mentioned, you know, uh, at Wexford, uh, because it's a nice, low key private establishment. And I don't talk about Wexford too much these days because um, I suffered the humiliation of uh, healing a shot uh, when I played there and shattering the windshield in my own golf cart. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I may have flexed for you on all the marvelous Redan holes that I've been fortunate to play. But, yeah, my my Wexford experience, that was, I think, what we call a reverse flex. Well, I was worried that that story was going to end up with you shattering the windshield of one of the, the boats or yachts in the, the harbor there at Wexford. So I'm glad it it just the uh, the only casualty was your golf cart. <laughs> a little less expensive than what could have happened there. Indeed. All right. From one template to another, our final uh, lesson here today. Uh, it's interesting, Joe. There's something about French words and, and template holes that seem to go hand in hand. When you talked about Redan being of, of a French origin, uh, this next one is also a French origin uh, because it originated in Biarritz, France, and that's the Biarritz hole. So uh, a different template. Uh, Joe, this is a, 
you know, highly, you talk about the Alps, or I'm sorry, the uh, Redan hole maybe being difficult to photograph. Uh, Biarritz holes are very photogenic. Uh, they often are par threes. Most typically they're par threes, typically long par threes, so 200 plus yards. Um, and the defining characteristic of a Biarritz hole is uh, a long green bisected by a deep swale in the middle. Um, you know, usually it's a, a few feet deep, this swale. Uh, and a lot of them often have bunkers flanking each side of the hole there. Um, another good one at Yemen saw that I played there and, and didn't play correctly, Joe, because a lot of times the Beeritz hole, the flag will be at the back of the green. It's a, a test of your long game. Uh, and where you want to be is on the right side of that swale, because if you're not, uh, it becomes a very difficult up and in, no matter if you're on the green uh, or not. Uh, oftentimes, too, the the front portion ahead of this swale uh, is not green. On, on many of the the examples here, it's it's fairway that runs through and into the swale, uh, so a different uh, cut of grass there. But um, the pin is often at the back on on Biarritz holes, and and you're wanting to hit it long and straight to get there and not be faced with a swell. So, Joe, the original Biarritz was done by the Dunn brothers, Willie and Tom Dunn, uh, on the Biarritz course in France. They called that hole the chasm because it played over the Bay of Biscay to this green, uh, very long green with a swale in the middle of it. When C.B. McDonald first used the Biarritz hole, uh, as became one of the common template holes as well, uh, his first iteration was at Piping Rock Club in Locust Valley, New York, was, was C.B. McDonald's first version of that. Being a template, it's been copied often. Uh, there are famous examples, the ninth hole at Yale's golf course, a very deep swell at that hole and playing over uh, a large lake there. Um, other great examples, you know, we've seen as as recent as the updates to PGA National and the match course done by Andy Staples. Their final hole is a great looking Beeritz hole. Joe, do you have any any favorites uh, that come to mind thinking of the Beeritz? Well, first of all, Al, unlike the Redan, you can't go visit the original Biarritz. Uh, the club uh, called La Faire uh, is the golf course for the Biarritz Golf Club, um, relocated a hundred years ago. So the hole that was being played in the 1800s into the very uh, earliest part, I believe, in the 1900s, um, no longer exists. Uh, they had to abandon that property and establish a new one uh, with a new golf course, and it's a very pleasant place to play, but with none of the spectacular aspects of what chasm, uh, as the hole was known. So that's too bad. Um, but there were some photos that made the rounds for people that didn't get to go there. Hard to come by. They're pretty rare, but they exist. And both from word of mouth, um, or whether McDonald ever saw it or he didn't, it was sufficiently famous back in the day 
um, because McDonald was spending time in St. Andrews in the 1870s and, and um, you know, many, many trips, that it resonated. And so in trying to re recreate, you couldn't hit over the bay, but the shot value of this gigantic green with a swale in it, um, you know, I mean, that is essentially the BRS, even if traditionalists more often than not say the front portion of that surface should be closely mown, but not mown as green. There are other clubs that disagree and disagree even on the original intent that all of it should be mown as green. Sometimes the swale is deeper than others that's in the middle, dividing the two portions. Uh, sometimes it's mown exactly as putting green, and other times it's a little shaggy, not rough, but just a little bit of growth. It's tough to get a mower down there sometimes. So for starters, you'll almost never in any of these holes see a hole cut in the trough, in the swale. Generally speaking, it's on the back portion because the old shot value was, we want you to run the ball in here. Even if you have to fly it a ways, we want it to be running. That's why some of the old Biarritz holes were still 230 yards, 210, you know, like, gosh, that's a long way for golf a century ago. But it's because it was meant to hit the ground and roll and roll and see how you were adept at that. So, you know, nowadays, um, most of the time you're flying a ball in and landing in a little softer. And uh, so you have holes like 1926, Yale, where the hole can be cut back, it can be cut front, but you have to hit over greased pond. I mean, it is a force carry, you know, to at least get you up there. But um, Al, there are a couple other things that strike me about beer Ritz holes is one, they're copied a fair amount now, not as often as Redan's, but they weren't copied for a long, long time, for like 80 or 90 years. Because let's face it, these are strange looking holes. Okay, I don't want to criticize the Biarritz because I've loved playing them, but they're just weird looking. <laughs> the green surface is so ginormous and you usually have bunkers, thin bunkers that are kind of linear that frame either side of both sections of the greens. So like four bunkers overall. Sometimes it's just one long bunker down the left, one long bunker down the right. Um, but it looks a little artificial, the way some of McDonald Rayner features could look. And so it's not always a love at first sight and first play with Biarritz holes, but as you began to understand why they were so effective on those old time courses and why we enjoy them again, um, even the fun of having faster green speeds now um, and, and being able to negotiate if you're on the wrong side, for instance, and have putting touch to get through the swale and then up to the right or correct side, I should say. So, um, yeah, you see them on the McDonald Rainer courses. Shore Acres in Chicago has a beauty, uh, number six. Chicago Golf, number three. Um, Fisher's Island, uh, talk about a scenic golf course with template holes. I mean, how much fun is that? The fifth hole at Fisher's is, is a terrific one. Um, I'm a fan of what Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw did at Streamsong Red 
the 16th hole. It is a force carryover water, but um, again, it's just cool. You got to walk over this bridge to get to the green. And there is your, you know, beer it's concept uh, sitting there for you. Um, you know, and, and definitely a few of the others out, out here. Forrest Richardson, the man you men, men, you know mentioned earlier, built one on a short course at Mountain Shadows, which has some original holes and some really fun replica template type holes. And so you can play one there on a short course if you just want to experience it. So, um, you know, uh, their, their fair share are out there. Uh, and again, they weren't copied <laughs> a ton because... You know, there's extra maintenance headaches that go along with having to maintain them in the right way. But um, they're close to unique in terms of a type of hole. As a template hole, you'll may maybe see 20 or 30 of them across your golf travels. So um, good to define a beer Ritz. You can't go see the original. But, um, you know, it's a uh, it's pretty cool aspect of golf course design. Definitely unique uh, in terms of their their aesthetic, and you know, like you mentioned, encourages the ground moving. Uh, and I'm sorry, encourages the ball uh, moving on the ground, rolling up to the hole. Uh, many people think golf is its most fun when the ball is rolling, uh, so this whole type of hole encourages that. Uh, and definitely when you have those two flanking bunkers on the right, long hole encourages a shot that is long and straight. Um, some examples, like you mentioned, that stream song red is such a fun hole. The 16th there, uh, that one's not as long. The green's still 70 yards deep. Uh, but it's a, what a great setting for that hole, um, there of the, the little man-made lake that they have, on that course. So, um, beer, it's one of the, the most fun, I think template holes that you can play. Uh, they're all great in their own way. Uh, it's a re there's a reason why they were, uh, copied. You will have fun with it. No, no matter what your, your score is. I'm quite sure. I think that's the operative word here. Al is fun is because whether you like the concept, whether you don't, um, you'll go, wow, this is so different. It's just not a green sitting out there, round green with, you know, two or three bunkers. I, yeah. You know, this is something that gets you thinking again, that you appreciate the creativity uh, that went into the original design and then later how they were molded onto different pieces of property. Um, and just like, okay, I might think it's <laughs> kind of weird looking, but I love playing every one of them because, again, it's just, ah, yeah, that's the fun of architecture. That's the fun of playing different courses is encountering something a little different along the way. Speaking of a little bit different, if you'd like us to talk about something different uh, and give you some background on some terms that you've heard or, or good things you think people should know about in the, the game of golf, in the world of golf course design, let us know. We'll try to cover it on a future episode. Joe, I think we should do this again. Uh, it was informative to me, and I hope uh, that the same goes for our listeners, too. Yeah, I would think uh, pretty much close to every one of our listeners likes to have fun 
with architecture. And, uh, you know, when we when we have a show like this that is devoted to the fun aspects of design uh, and explaining well, where some of these terms came from and what they're all about, um, I, I have a good time doing it. And you can flex, too, after listening to this and repeating some of the stuff we said. Some of it, not all of it. I'm sure we said some things that, you know, I don't know what what all I'm talking about all the time. So, Not true, Al. Um, no, that's, that's the fun. That's why we travel. And when we find something in design, um, that we want to see, I mean, most of us, uh, and, and everybody listening, like, yeah, I want to go check that box. I want to go see that course. I want to play that hole. And, um, you know, that's, that's a big part of what we do here at Lynx Magazine. Absolutely. All right, Joe, until next time. Take care, Al.